Good a very morning, warm welcome <laughs> from uh, Kerry and myself. And uh, we just want to say it's a great privilege for us to be together and in these numbers. Amen. Amen. And it's just wonderful to be able to be close to brothers and sisters at this special time as we remember the hope of our salvation and what it means to us to be in Christ. And if you're here for the first time and you don't quite yet know where you stand with Jesus, you are so welcome. We're hoping that your heart is warmed to the wonder of who Jesus is and his love for you. And so, Kerry, we've got a few special things this morning happening in our service. What's coming up? We do, but also if you're new to us and to our service and you're not quite uh, used to our facilities, just wanted to bring your attention to where you Very can find important. things. Yes. As you go out the back door to the right is a passage. That's where you'll find our bathrooms. If you have small children in the church with you this morning that perhaps get a little restless and need some space to run around, we have a mom's room in the foyer or we have a live feed room just under the tent and you're welcome to make use of those spaces. There's toys for the kids to play with and then you'll have still visual, visual and audio of the service. If your kids want to stay in here and they're happy to do that, we also have some activity packs in the foyer that they can run and grab. There's some coloring in pages and crayons and some worksheets that they can do to help them follow along with this morning's service. Awesome. And we do ask parents, if your kids are getting a bit restless, please do make use of those facilities. We've got young kids. We know what it's like to try and control them, but we just want to ask as the sermon's happening that you just respect the space where we can keep our full attention as to what God wants to say. And you can still hear that for yourself in the live feed room. Really make yourself at home and comfortable here. Uh, we've also got something very special to hand out after the service, don't we, today? It is Easter Sunday, and although we're celebrating Christ in the building, we know that Easter eggs are still a fun part of the morning, <laughs> and so we are more than happy to feed you chocolate as you exit. So as you go out, there'll be Easter eggs handed out, and we'll also be serving coffee this morning. So there's no need to rush away. We would no, love it if don't. you would stay in fellowship and yeah. get to know some new faces this morning. Enjoy a cup of coffee and an Easter egg on us. And then if you have any questions for us, if you are a visitor, we would usually hand out an information pack. But because of COVID, we are yeah. holding off on the paperwork at the moment. But we would still love to meet you. So please do come and introduce yourself to one of us on staff. You'll see the elders in the front here, Mark and Joe and their wives. And then we have some people in black hospitality shirts that are running around in the background. They will also gladly give you any information that you need um, if, yeah, if you have any questions for us. I hope the diabetics had extra incident this morning because uh, we, 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 we wanted to make sure you all head home safe and sound. But um, from our side, there's also something very exciting coming up. We are a part of uh, a family of churches called Advance. And the purpose of Advance is to plant new churches and to strengthen local ones. And we've really received a lot of blessing and grace from them as a church. But we're also part of a much bigger picture. And on the 14th of April, which is a Wednesday at half past seven, all the African churches that are part of Advance are going to get together and we're going to pray together online and it's quite exciting we have church plants happening in Madagascar in Tanzania in Kenya across our country and it's wonderful to be a part of what God is doing outside of Little East London and so we really want to appeal to you if you're going to get together as small groups or as friends or as family to book that slot Half past seven online, you can pray at home, but even better, Kerry, what else are we offering? For those of you that aren't in a small group and would like to participate, we're inviting you to join us here. We can have 150 of us in the building, and we will pray from 7.30 to 8.30. But if you'd like to come a little bit early, we will also serve you coffee from 7. Yes. So we would love to have you come in fellowship with us ahead of that from 7 o'clock. So that's the 14th of April at 7 o'clock. So let's close our eyes. We're going to pray for Mark as he's going to come and bring the word. Let's commit our hearts to him. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that this word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword and it's able to cut the very innermost parts of our lives and expose where you want to get and bring freedom. And I am praying this morning, and we're praying as a church for that freedom to come. 
That's what the resurrection is. It's freedom from death and sin, and it's holding us. And we're praying as Mark preaches that we will go out in power. And that, Lord, for the hearts that are here this morning, that you'd open them wide. That, Lord, for some of us who need salvation in this room, that salvation would come like a flood. That today, as Paul said, today would be the day of salvation. But also, Lord, for those of us who have maybe grown cold or quiet or stilled in our faith in Jesus, we're praying this morning, would the Word come and do its work and make us more fully alive to this resurrection power at work within us, calling us to Christ and home. So bless this time, Lord. Seal it with your mercy. Let your anointing flow through Mark, giving great liberty and power. And might this time be fruitful for your name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. It is a wonderful privilege to be in the pulpit this morning on this wonderful uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And our theme for Easter uh, this weekend, starting on Friday, was it's a hope to share. And... We looked on Good Friday at Mark's account of Jesus' death on the cross, and this morning we're going to look at Luke's account of the resurrection. But before we get there, I just want to touch on this idea of hope. Um, I spoke about it on Friday. If you were there, you'll remember. But I'm not speaking about hope in the sense that we would normally use it today uh, in most life situations. We use hope in the sense of wishful thinking. I hope that this might happen, or I hope that this might happen. It's a, it's a hope so. There's nothing too strong in it, too foundational, too helpful. You can't control it. It's based on circumstances outside of your control. And so that's why um, often, like some examples I gave on Friday, we can hope that the Proteas will win a test match. We don't feel too confident in that hope, but we can wish that that might happen. Um, the Christian hope is something far stronger than just the hope of wishful thinking. The Christian hope is not founded upon circumstances outside of someone's control. It's founded upon the very promises of God. And when the Christian believes that God will do what he has promised and puts their trust in that, then we have a sure hope. We know God's going to do it. It's not just wishful thinking. And that's the hope that is offered to us. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter puts it like this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This morning's sermon is called... Um, I actually have two titles. So I'll see which one comes up on the screen. Uh, a Skeptic No More. Or hope for the skeptic. And um, now some of you are perhaps more skeptical in the room this morning than others. And that, that's perfectly fine. Uh, I don't want you to feel uh, that you can't be here. We welcome everyone to come and see and come and ask questions. In fact, that's the calling scripture. Come and see. Come and see that God is real. Come and see that He's alive. You can come with your questions this morning. And... Um, you'll find in the base text that we're going to use this morning in Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to ask you to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. Uh, for those of you that don't have uh, your Bibles with you, you can use a Bible app. I encourage you to read with me. Uh, you'll actually find a surprising amount of skepticism even in the text this morning, hence the title. And whether you are a skeptic or not, my hope 
and that's the hope so kind. My hope this morning is that God will reveal himself to you, give you fresh eyes for a familiar story, and that he'd help you see something he wants you to take away from it that will impact your life in a massive way. Let's read Luke chapter 24. We'll just read the first 12 verses together. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. I'm going to take on the role of the skeptic in my first section this morning, and I'm going to ask two questions that uh, arise from the text that seem to have problems. The first is a question I asked myself once as a young man, I remember struggling with this. I have a mathematical mind, and when I see maths, simple maths, it doesn't seem to line up. I struggle with it. And um, the first problem happens right in the beginning when it says, but on the first day of the week, that's the Sunday, at early dawn they went to the tomb and they found he wasn't there. And as we spoke about on Good Friday, Jesus dies at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. So he is only dead for... Some of Friday, all of Saturday, and some of Sunday. Now, that might not be a problem to most of you sitting in here. You might be quite comfortable with that. But that was a problem for me. Because I was aware of a prophecy that Jesus himself pointed to when they were asking him for a sign. They said, show us a sign that you are who you say you are. And he says to them, the only sign that will be given you is the sign of Jonah. And just like Jonah was in the a stomach of a, a fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the stomach of the earth for three days and three nights. And you might start to see the mathematical issue I had. Because <laughs> Jesus was only in the belly of the earth for two nights. And he was only in the belly of the earth for parts of two days and a whole day. So what was going on? And I remember going to my pastor and asking him the question, and uh, we've discussed this in Bible studies. Please don't think this is a bad answer. This is a great answer. I don't know is a wonderful answer when you don't know. It's much better than making it up on the spot and confusing everyone around you. He didn't have the answer, but it wasn't helpful to my young inquisitive mind. 
and I continue to pursue that answer. I'm going to offer you an answer this morning. I think it's a simple one. It's got to do with Jewish culture. Um, It's got to do with time and the way they look at time. And in Jewish culture, there's two parts, two things I want to bring to your attention that's different to the way you you and I might think in the West today. We count a day from when? When do we start? When did today start? Midnight. One second past midnight is the start of the day for us. But for the Jew, the start of the day and the end of the day is at sunset. That's when they start a new day. So for the Jew, if we want to be specific, Jesus was dead for three hours on Friday, from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock, and that's sunset. And then he was dead for the whole of Saturday. And probably, because we don't know at what time he rose on Sunday, but we know that the ladies get there just after dawn, and he's already um, alive, or he's not in the tomb yet, I should say. I'm going to keep my skeptical glasses on. And so he's probably uh, only been dead for 11, 10 or 11 hours, 6 o'clock to 5 o'clock, somewhere around there. It's helpful to know that their days work a bit differently. Because what we're saying is he was dead for a part of Friday, all of Sunday, uh, all of Saturday, and a part of Sunday. Maybe half. How do we reconcile this to the concept of three days and three nights? Well, it's interesting. Um, in the Jewish timekeeping, the difference between a part and a whole, especially when you're talking about time, is pretty inconsequential. It is not incompatible to say he was dead for three days if he was dead for a part of a day, a whole day, and a part of another day. That's not incompatible in the way that they would speak. And so there's not really an issue. He was dead for three days in the Jewish way of keeping time and the way that they would speak. The last little piece of evidence comes in the text itself. In verse um, 7, the angel says... uh, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And the most common turn of phrase used, even by Jesus himself, was that he would rise on the third day, not at the end of the third day. So this thought that I had as a young Western logical, mathematical, thinking I'm mathematical, it's just counting to three really, um, is that Jesus somehow has to be dead for 72 hours is inaccurate. It's an inaccurate thought. He would rise at some point on the third day, and he did. There's not really a problem when you look at the answer in more detail. The second question I'm going to ask this morning isn't one that I even ask myself. It's one I've come across from skeptics, and I'm surprised by it. I really have no problem with this question. I think most of you in the room will not have a problem with the question, and I think anyone who does have a problem with the question is probably going to not admit that they have a problem with this question. It's got to do with the fact that the first witnesses to find Jesus were women. What a strange problem to create. But the problem goes something like this. Because women were considered to be unreliable witnesses, And we see that even in the text. These women who had been with Jesus and the disciples knew fairly well came and told them what they saw and what was the disciples' response. It was disbelief. The ESV is kind. The ESV says idle tale. 
Some of the other translations are harsher. They say they were speaking nonsense. They were speaking rubbish. They did not believe what these women were saying. And the skeptical argument goes, if God was real, surely God would have made men the first witnesses so that the testimony would be more reliable. The fact that it's women, and no one's going to believe women anyway, is proof, somehow, that God isn't real. Can you believe this is even an, a problem? Um, now, we see in the patriarchal society that women are unreliable witnesses. And we see it in the text, as I've already said. Um, but if you, today, in this society, hold to the view that a woman's testimony is unreliable based on her gender, may I suggest you increase your social distancing uh, and uh, your wife is probably lining you up for a, a club that's going to knock you out of the dark ages. How is this an issue for us in the 21st century? I have no problem with the fact that the first people to see the empty tomb are women, even though it made it difficult for the disciples to believe at first. My conclusion is that God wanted women to be the first to see the empty tomb and that Jesus, who regularly elevated the status of women above those of his time, time and time again he's shown to do that. That's why he's happy to spend so much time with them. In the story, women get an opportunity to make a significant contribution. They are the first to witness the empty tomb. In a male-dominated narrative, I think it's wonderful for women that they had this opportunity. And I don't know why this is a problem for the skeptic. I hope it's not a problem for you. I know it's not a problem for me this morning. It does not mean that God is not real just because women showed up first. And if it really matters to you, a man also saw the empty tomb. Even in the text, Peter goes immediately and runs. And if you read John, John goes with him and John gets there ahead of him. Men also saw the empty tomb. How can we be so immature in our thinking to think it matters that women got there first? Let's rather rejoice and celebrate the fact that women too make a wonderful contribution in this narrative. I want to move away from skeptical thought for a moment and I want to start to present to you some evidence. Luke provides two pieces of evidence for the resurrection in the text and it is interesting that at each moment that the evidence is provided he records a very skeptical response that will later turn into unwavering belief. The first piece of evidence is the empty tomb. Notice the response of the woman at first is one of perplexion. They are utterly amazed and confused. Jesus had already told them that he would rise on the third day. And the angels remind them of that. So deep down they know that this was going to happen. Yet, when they come into the empty tomb, their response isn't one of rejoicing and praise and uh, celebration of this truth. It's perplexion. What has happened here? How has this happened? Where is the body? Who could have taken it? The first one to mention the resurrection is the angel. 
And it is quite possible that until he does that, the thought hasn't even entered into their minds. Their first response to the empty tomb is a skeptical response. It's one of perplexion. And when you look at the history of the First Testament, uh, the history of the First Testament, the history of the first century, and you start to look at the historical records and accounts, you, you find something very interesting. The empty tomb is uncontested. It's uncontested. No one has a problem with it. No one uh, says it did not happen. In fact, even the enemies of the gospel and even the enemies of the church and even the enemies of Christianity and Jesus, they themselves concede the empty tomb. It was, in fact, empty. This first piece of evidence is uncontested in the first century. It only becomes an issue for the skeptic much later. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, I don't have this on the screen. Um, I'm going to read it to you. I'll say it again so you can always check me. This is a good verse to check. Matthew 28, verse 11, it says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Even in making up a story, they concede the empty tomb. Do you, do you notice that? They say, yes, the tomb is empty. We concede that fact. But this is the story we are going to spread. The disciples themselves had something to do with the removal of the body. It's only much later that an uncontested empty tomb is problematic for the skeptic. And this is because the ill-fated theory propagated by the re religious leaders loses steam on the account of the lives of the apostles. When they propagated the story, it was far more believable based on the lives of the apostles, the lives that they were living, cowering in the shadows and hiding away somewhere from everyone, than when you start to watch how their lives change in the decades to come. And they are willing to give up their lives for what they believe in. They, this is not the behavior of people that made up a lie to confuse people. This is the b behavior of people who have wholehearted conviction and are willing to die for what they have seen. The empty tomb theory that the disciples took the body loses steam. And so this is why the modern day skeptic tries to reconcile the empty tomb in a different way. Bart Ehrman, you've heard me quote him before, is an atheist biblical scholar it, doesn't that sound like an oxymoron? Uh, atheist biblical scholar who believes in the crucifixion of Jesus, but not in the resurrection of Jesus. So he believes Jesus lived, and he believes Jesus died, but he does not believe that Jesus was raised to life again. And he believes this on history, not on the Bible. He can show you historically, and it satisfies him historically, that there was a man, Jesus. To deny that there was a man, Jesus, is to deny history, according to Bart Ehrman. And to deny that he died on the cross is to deny history. He can support that historically. What is his problem? His problem is, where is the body? And Bart's best answer 
after the decades of research, is that Jesus' body remained on the cross. And that it rotted away on the cross. And uh, when it was just a few uh, remains left on the cross, they threw it into uh, a mass grave where they would have thrown all of the criminals. The criminals didn't get a, a burial. They got a, a mass grave. And that's probably where the body of Jesus lies to this day, according to Bart Ehrman. He bases this on historical records of thousands of crucifixions where this is what happens time after time after time. You don't take the body down, you leave it up there, it rots away, you throw it into a mass grave. Thousands of stats will support this. Sound convincing? Not so fast. If the common practice was to leave the bodies to decay on the cross, was there a special reason that Jesus' body was taken down from the cross? And in John chapter, again, I want you to check this. I'm giving you this uh, verse. I should have ha had it on the screen. I'm sorry, I don't. John 19, verse 31. Scripture records the precise reason Jesus' body gets taken down from the cross. And it might surprise you. Let's hear what the, it says. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews... Not to the disciples. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that their legs might be broken. This is not a special request for Jesus. Every single man on the cross that day was requested to have their legs broken and that they might be taken away. Is that not interesting? The Jewish leaders themselves asked, for the men on the cross to be taken down. Why? Because it was the day of preparation. It was a day of festival. The next day was the Sabbath, and they did not want to have any of those men hanging on the cross there. Rather than reviewing history and looking at thousands and thousands of crucifixions that happened in Roman countries all over the world, a much better way of trying to understand what might have happened is to look at Jewish crucifixions. Crucifixions that happened at, in uh, the Jewish land, and the time is important, at a time of a festival. And you might find that the, what you think are staggering numbers in evidence that Jesus' body stayed hung on a cross, it might leave you less convinced to go against the biblical narrative. His body was taken down, was buried in a tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who believed buried him there. But the empty tomb is not enough. It was not enough for the woman and it's not enough for Peter. The second piece of evidence is eyewitness testimony. Notice that the first response from the woman is perplexion. The first response from the disciples is disbelief. And the first response from Peter, even upon seeing the empty tomb, is he marvels. And marveling means he's wondering what has happened. This is not walking away convinced. He still needs to be convinced. He is still a skeptic. The second piece of evidence is eyewitness testimony. Now, I haven't read it to you today because we don't have enough time, but straight after this text, and I want to encourage you when you go home, carry on reading Luke chapter 24. Jesus starts to reveal himself in his resurrected body to the disciples immediately. We see a story of two people walking the road of Emmaus. 
and Jesus joins them, and he, his uh, face is hidden. They don't recognize him, and he talks with them, and eventually he breaks bread with them and reveals himself to them, and they see him, and they go and they tell the disciples that they have seen Jesus. You don't just have an empty tomb. You have eyewitness testimony. And he doesn't just reveal himself to two disciples. He eventually reveals himself to all of the disciples. And he doesn't just reveal himself to all of the disciples. He eventually reveals himself to 500 people at the same time. Listen to what uh, Paul writes in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 8. Paul says this, that he was... Sorry, let me start from the... I'm on the... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. When Paul writes this, most of the people who saw Jesus are still alive, still alive to dispute if this is somehow a lie that has been propagated. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We have eyewitness account of the resurrected Jesus, not from one, not from two, from hundreds. The combination of these two pieces of evidence is powerful. If it was just the empty tomb, then several alternatives could be offered. And perhaps the, even the skeptics in our text would not have been convinced. If it was just the appearances, I suppose you could reason it away with some kind of hallucinatory hypothesis. Although I find that incredibly difficult to believe, but this is the... the thing that some skeptics propagate, that 500 people hallucinated the same thing at the same time, in the same place. It's difficult to swallow. But when you combine these two things, the fact that there is an empty tomb and they don't know where the body is, to the fact that there were people watching and seeing Jesus walking around, the resurrected Jesus, you put those two pieces of evidence together and you have something that turns the skeptics in this text into die-hard believers. That was enough for them. It's enough for me. It's enough for many of you. But the most powerful evidence I will still present. My third and final point this morning is a skeptic no more. I'm so grateful, actually, that the woman didn't just see the empty tomb and go, yes, he must be resurrected. I'm so grateful that they actually had a fairly normal human response and wondered what might have happened. Because when they start to believe with conviction, it tells me something else has happened. I'm so grateful that the disciples' initial response is, we don't believe you. You're speaking nonsense. Because when those same disciples start to lay down their lives for what they believe, it's not just based on the empty tomb. It has to be based on something more. The greatest evidence this morning is the changed lives. The changed lives of the people involved in this narrative. Consider Peter. He goes from denying Jesus three times in a one-on-one -on -one 
There might have been a few more people around the fire. But there's not a lot of men, and he's afraid of them. And he lies, and he says he doesn't know Jesus three times, and he weeps bitterly. This was not a courageous man who was going to lead the church, who was going to die upside down. This was someone like you and me, afraid, afraid of just a few. Someone who, when he hears that Jesus is resurrected, won't believe it. Someone who, when he goes and he sees that there's an empty tomb, still struggles to believe it. It's only when he sees Jesus and encounters him face to face that he uh, changes. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when they're praying. The Holy Spirit falls on that room, and they are changed. And that man goes the very next part of the story speaking to everyone in the city at the temple. So afraid to admit he knew Jesus just weeks earlier. Now he will stand in front of thousands at the risk of imprisonment and death and declare Jesus is risen. He's changed miraculously. And he does go to prison. And he does get released from prison. And guess what? He continues to tell people that Jesus is risen. He, he knows that it's happened. And finally, as we've been going through 2 Peter, you'll know he dies on a cross, upside down. So sure is he of what he has seen. The Christ has risen. And the skeptic is a skeptic no more. Peter has changed. Consider Paul. Was there a greater skeptic in his day? His Hatred for the followers of Jesus. He pursued them far and wide. He was so driven. He had thrown them into prison on multiple occasions. He sought legal interdicts to go and pursue them in other cities. It wasn't enough for, them, for him that they left his city. He wanted to go and chase them down. And so he did. He was there the day Stephen is murdered. And he supports the murder of Stephen. One encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, ironically in the pursuit of Christians, he wanted to see imprisoned or worse, changes him forever. He goes on to write most of the New Testament and become the greatest missionary who ever lived. A life changed powerfully by an encounter with Jesus. And if historical change it's not enough for you, then I present to you change today. Sitting here in this room are hundreds, I'm exaggerating a little bit because it's only 150, okay, <laughs> are possibly up to 100 or more stories of the real Jesus changing your life. And I would love to have a a, a, a Sunday service where we don't even have a sermon, where we just give opportunity after opportunity for each one of us to stand and tell how the living Jesus has changed our lives. I am a skeptic no more. Born into an atheistic family, never went to church, never went to Sunday school, got saved through the preaching of the gospel at Selborne College of all places. There must be a God. And I start coming to this church. 
by God's grace and sovereign hand. And I no longer doubt. I stand before you and I say wholehearted conviction. He is risen. If you're still asking that question this morning, please come and ask us. We know this is not a hope. I hope so. We are sure of this hope. He's changed our lives. There is hope this morning for the most hardcore skeptic. Why? Because Jesus is risen and he lives forevermore. How many lives have been changed by him in this room and around the world? Think of how many skeptics have come to saving faith throughout history. There is some skeptic in all of us. All of us need some convincing. But if you open your heart to him and you truly seek him, he will find you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what about the believer this morning? I've spoken a lot to the skeptic. What does the resurrection of Christ mean for those of us who already believe? It means we have a hope to share. Listen to this wonderful scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Matt shared this with us on Friday morning in the prayer meeting. And I believe God wants me to say it to you this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, entrusting to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He has entrusted you, believer, with the message that something he wants you to say of reconciliation. That God wants to reconcile himself to the world. He doesn't want to count their sins against them anymore. And we know how they can be reconciled because it's happened to us. It's happened because I made a decision that day. He showed me that he was alive. I made a decision to put my trust in him and to live for him, and so have many of you. And the resurrection this morning is a call out to you to say, you have a hope to share. And he wants us to share this hope with others so that the lost can be reconciled to God. As we come to the communion table this morning, I'm going to ask the uh, ones who are serving us to come up now. As we come to this table, we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that our sins could be taken away. And we can now enter into the Holy of Holies, that's what we spoke about on Friday, into a real relationship with God. Jesus told us to do this often. You're going, we just did it on Friday. Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. I don't think we do it enough. But the resurrection also has something to say at the communion table this morning. When Jesus dies on the cross, he defeats sin. When he is raised from the dead, he defeats death. Both of those enemies are under his feet. 
And we know that the sacrifice on the Friday was accepted because Jesus is raised from the grave. God accepted the sacrifice for our sins. You no longer have to hide. You no longer have to stand far off. You can come this morning, even as a sinner, you can come. I read a story on Friday of, of the Scottish um, believer struggling with sin. And the communion uh, gets passed and he passes it on because he doesn't feel worthy to take it. And another lady down the passage from him also passes the communion on because she doesn't feel worthy and she bursts into tears. And it jolts him. And he remembers that it's for sinners. And he goes up to her and in a whisper that can be heard in the entire church, he says to her, take it, Lassie. Take it. It's meant for sinners. This morning, church, Christians, every one of us wrestles with sin. God's call to you through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that sin has been dealt with forever. Come. But don't come if you are not in Christ. That is something you need to check in your heart this morning. I'm going to invite people to come up in a moment, but you must only come if you've decided to put your faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for you on the cross. If you haven't done that yet, rather wait. Because when we take this, we take this in remembrance of Him. We declare, yes, He did die on the cross for me. Yes, His body was broken on the cross for me. Yes, His blood was shed for me. I am trusting in this. And I can come, even though I'm a sinner, I can come because of what Jesus has done for me. And if you are not in Christ this morning, I'm going to ask you to rather wait until you've made that decision. But I also want to be bold this morning because a lot of this sermon has been geared to the one who might not be in Christ yet. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because as it happened for me in one day, in one moment where a decision was made, so it might be for someone in the room this morning. And as soon as you make that decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ and what He's done for you on the cross and to live for Him, you can come and partake in this. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that this morning. So we're just going to sit a moment of silence. I'm going to ask the believers in the room to pray quietly with me that God would reveal himself even now and soften hearts. And that even this morning, a skeptic might become a skeptic no more. Lord, I want to thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that sin has been dealt with that it has no hold on us any longer it can no longer separate us from you I want to pray in the room right now Lord that you would soften hearts to you 
that may be someone who's never chosen to put their trust in you and what you've done for them on the cross, that they would make the decision to do that this morning. And I'm praying, Lord, that as they do that, that you would come by your Holy Spirit and speak to them. Fill them with your Spirit. Give them your peace. May they know that they belong to you. And for the believer this morning, we want to say to you, Lord, thank you for this hope that you've entrusted to us. Lord, we don't want to live passively before you. We're only here for a short time, Lord. We want to live lives that bring you glory. We want to live lives of boldness, just like these apostles who've changed and so boldly shared their faith for you, Lord. We want to do the same. Stir our hearts, Lord, to share this hope with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh...
victory Jesus you are enough you did it for me you did it for love it's your victory Jesus you are enough 
Behold the Lamb, the story of redemption written on His hands. Jesus, You will reign forevermore. Yes, You are Lord. The victory is Yours. We are so thankful that this victory that has been won is so personal, that we can know this Jesus, that we can enjoy you and delight in you, that this resurrection from the dead has meant for us that we have life. And not life in isolation, but life with you. And so Lord, we will pray this morning that you would instill in us in deep satisfaction and joy in you, that, Lord, you would draw us closer to you, that we would live in the freedom that you have won for us in Christ, that we will be a people that are characterized by joy, a people that are characterized by pursuing after Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might be emboldened to live for the glory of Jesus, that we will be emboldened like the disciples were, changed people to go out and let people know that we, have met with the risen Jesus, that He is alive, that He has died for them, that He is for them, that He wants them. And I pray, Lord, that You would give us victory in this area, that You would help us win the city for the glory of Christ. Oh, Lord, use us, we pray. Call us to greater things, we ask. Be gracious to us in Jesus' name. Amen.